So I'm going to start tonight's talk with a Zen story. I don't know why the Theravadan lineage doesn't have stories, but um, it seems as if there are always these Zen stories that feel really on point. And um, this story is about um, a warrior general who was rampaging the lands, uh, landscape. He was um, conquering the countryside and killing indiscriminately and and all of the inhabitants of the region were were in flight and 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 um, traumatized and and uh, he came to this Zen temple and he burst into it and sitting in the center of the temple was the Zen master absolutely perfectly still and calm completely in poise and the warrior general, you know, shouted at him, do you realize I'm the kind of person who can run my sword right through you without batting an eye? And with not skipping a beat, with the greatest gentleness and kindness, the master replied, and do you realize that I'm the kind of person that can sit here while you run your sword through me without batting an eye? And with that, the warrior general stopped his rampage because he saw a power greater than, than his own. And he became a monastic under this great teacher and the countryside became much more peaceful. So the metaphor of that story is that there is, a re- there is a relationship between our personal practice and our collective experience in the world. There is a relationship between the transformation that we do internally and the collective transformation that is that is calling us to be part of. What we do in this room is directly applicable to our lives outside this room. Cultivating cultivating our awareness and our kindness practice, our mindfulness and metta practice is not just an internal experience. So we may think that we're meditating to create peace in our own minds or, or create these openings in our hearts or creating stillness in the middle of you know, the busyness of our lives. We may think that this meditation is about creating kindness in, in mindfulness so that we have the ability to make better decisions, to choose that which allows us more ease, less suffering. And we may even feel that this practice is about creating insight. And I think that there is something additional that the Buddha was offering an opportunity for and that he intended 
And that is collecting, uh, that is connecting this personal internal practice of mindfulness and metta with a collective experience of mindfulness and loving kindness so that we can actually transform our world and lift our lives up from how we harm ourselves and others. So the title of this talk is a pickup from where Donald left off. And the title of the talk is On the Path Towards the Beautiful and the Beloved Community. And I use those two descriptors, beautiful and beloved. So beautiful within the Dharma is not an aesthetic quality. It has nothing to do with with um, um, aesthetic beauty or 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 um, what is you know pleasing. Beauty is that which leads to freedom. That which leads to an open heart and a clear mind. That is what is truly, undeniably beautiful all the time. And of course, beloved community comes from Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's teachings, which are um, um, exemplified by this passage. Our goal is to create a beloved community, and this will require a qualitative change in our souls and a quantitative change in our lives. So how do we make these qualitative and quantitative change in order to build the beautiful and beloved communities that, that, um, that we're being pointed towards? As Sylvia was so beautifully describing in her teachings, and she always describes these in, in, in her teachings, that mindfulness and metta really are integrated into really one lived experience. And so within the teachings in the Satipatthana Sutta is the invitation to practice internally, to practice externally, and to practice internally and externally so that we turn this loving-kindness practice not just to our internal experience, but how do we manifest it in our external world? The internal reflection is how does loving-kindness manifest in ourselves, in relationship to others? The external reflection is, how does kindness, how is kindness experienced by others, and how do we support that? And we do this incrementally, as with all of our practice, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's metta, whether it's the breath, whether it's the phrases, we do this incrementally, And this is what we're doing in this retreat. 
that we get to know each other in the si- even in the silence through the intimacy of the rhythm of the breath of the person next to us. I mean, how tender is that? How many people in our lives do we know by the rhythm of their breath beyond our intimate partners? I don't know if some of you are here with either friends or partners or siblings or family members. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but um, there are times in which, you know, if you've been practicing long enough, you develop friends that happen to show up at retreats. And it's always a joy to see someone that you've practiced with, you've gotten to know, And um, one of my closest Dharma friends, every now and then we intersect at retreats. And um, I remember the first time this happened during walking meditation. And we just happened to choose the same location for walking meditation. And it wasn't that they were in my consciousness. I mean, although they were, it wasn't that I was searching, thinking about them. But as many of you know, and maybe all of you know, we're in an altered space. We're in a tenderized space. And when we walk together, and this was, you know, um, this was a two-week retreat, was probably halfway through I can't tell you where we went, but it was through lifetimes. You know, they became my mother and my father and my sister and my friends and my... It was extraordinary. And, you know, I thought I was like, you know, I thought I was just in papancha. My mind was just, you know, perseverating on a story until after the retreat. And we checked in with each other. And there was this, you know, it it felt as if we were a little crazy together, this filia de, you know, that, that they had exactly the same experience. And it was like, we're both married to different people. And this experience was so, you know, it's like, Do we tell our partners this? (laughs) There is a connection that we build that is ineffable if if there's the openness to receive it. And, you know, the follow-up to that story around the walking meditation is it happened again several years later. Different meditation center, different retreat, And we're very cautious now (laughs) as to whether we walk together or not. Because, again, you know, it's like any altered state. It can be incredibly pleasant, and that's not necessarily freedom. But the point of the story is that you are developing relationships even in this beautiful silence. You pay attention to 
to the physical aspects of the room where people are, how you leave the space. You pay attention to even the thoughts and judgments that arise, you know, of the noise in the room or the needs of people. What cushions you're using, how many cushions are left. Thinking about just beginning to think about how to be kind even in this space, taking care of ourselves. How do you take care of ourselves in that line for any meal down in the dining room? I just went through the, you know, there are four lines. Going through the middle two line between those <laughs> tables is, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult. You know, bumping into, and I knocked into someone, and you know, there was just this, I am just so sorry. And the eating meditation itself. The invitation is not just to explore the brilliance of the sensations in the, in the, in the, in the taste door, in that sense door. But one of the traditional instructions is to eat five bites from full. This touches onto Heather's teaching in that line in the Metta Sutta, being frugal in their ways. What does eating five bites from full really mean? Well, how often do we eat 500 bites after we're full? right? Because we're not aware that our needs have been met and we're just eating the wanting, whatever it is, whether we're, you know, eating the emotion or the conversation. But again, I think that the invitations of these teachings is into something larger. For example, what it would be like to live our lives five bites from full what it would be like to buy our clothes five bites from full, use our resources or gasoline or, or you know, transportation five bites from full. We're not going to starve. We're not going to go naked. We're not going to not get where we need to go. And the world might be a different place just based on those five bites. That these, in, that these seemingly personal practices, if you really look into how expansive they could be, can change our world. Because the practice, when it's only internal, can lead to a kind of self-centeredness you know, a creation of self, that we become preoccupied with our own experience and not really being aware of the experience of others and one's own impact on the others. So, um, you know, it's ironic. I was um, sitting a meditation in a different lineage, in a different Buddhist lineage. It happened to be in San Rafael. And it was in this small meditation center and um, 
It was this expansive teaching on on meditations and the great perfection. So they're very expansive and visual and um, beautiful in that way. And there were about 30 or 40 people that were attending this retreat. It was a commuting retreat. It wasn't a resident, it was a non-residential, but it lasted for seven days. And so um, what was so poignant and interesting is what happened outside of the retreat space, because there were 30 or 40 people that had to park. And so everybody would park in the same place that everybody else did, not realizing that this is a residential neighborhood in San Rafael. And it meant that everybody in the, res- in, in the houses couldn't park during the day. And so this came to the attention of the meditation center, you know, there were some complaints. And so, (laughs) and so, um, the people in the retreat, um, there were some people that found another place to park across the highway, across 4th Street, and everybody went and parked there and created the same dynamic (laughs) in the other neighborhood. I mean, here we are, expansively, you know, opening to the universe, and there is not the awareness of the impact that the group was having. And, you know, the aftermath of that actually was quite sad because the meditation center lost their lease due to the complaints of the residents. So really this internal and external practice. What is my, what is the impact of my life on yours? And what is the impact of your life on mine? This is a kindness practice. This is a metta practice. And it is the point in which we expand from the personal to the collective, from the individual to the community. And this is also a lived experience of non-self. This is an invitation into the teachings of anatta. When we, when we live into that which is, that is larger than who we are, that is the invitation of the refuge of Sangha. Another sort of story around that, you know, this dates me too, but um, I had a conference to go to in Tokyo uh, many years ago, and it was, it coincided with um, the uh, starting of Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA tour. So this is a long time ago. And the story of how I got the tickets, which is another story, it was like, I didn't expect to get the tickets, but I got the tickets and I brought somebody uh, that I was going to the conference with. And it was in the 1960, um, uh, uh, one of the 
it was a skating rink of the 1960 uh, Olympics. So it's huge, 22,000 people space. And um, so we got there and nothing's happening. And somebody gets up in the front and says, um, we're really happy that Bruce Springsteen is here with his band. We hope that you will do everything in your power to make him feel welcome and to be courteous. So please do not stand in the aisles, do not stand on your chairs and respect, you know, our guests, which happened. No standing in the aisles, no standing in the chairs. And then, you know, it was a great concert. He left the stage and nothing happens. And I'm turning to my friend and, and after five or 10 minutes, we realize that this, the whole stadium is exiting row by row. <laughs> in, you know, as a collective courtesy, that has been, you know, that has been conditioned collectively. So fast forward, you know, maybe 15, 20 years, and Stephen and I go to a George Michael concert at the San Jose Pavilion. (laughs) And you can imagine the difference. Because I hadn't been to a concert in years. And it's like everybody is in your face. So you have to stand on your chairs. And, you know, in the pavilion, when you stand on the chairs, the whole bleachers sort of. (laughs) And so we eventually left because we couldn't enjoy the concert itself. The cultural embedding of these teachings I mean, that, that's, what, that's what it showed me. When the teachings actually permeate our collective consciousness, we create a different way of living together. And we also know how sometimes we can get lost in, in being, um, in paying attention only to the external, only to the, the, the community or the, the um, external conditions. And I know that many of you in this room are social change agents and, and work to change the world. And yet, if our only focus is, is external, this place can burn out our own hearts when we don't sustain ourselves. So Thomas Merton writes this very, you know, famous and relevant quote. There is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, activism and overwork. The Russian pressure of modern life are a form perhaps the most common form of its innate violence, to, be al- to allow yourself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit yourself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace, 
It destroys our own capacity for inner peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes it fruitful. Therefore, this practice is inherently this dynamic of internal and external. And we start in this room. You are already beginning that process. There may be people that you know really well here that you've seen repeatedly over the years that you've come back or that you've come with. And there may be people here that you don't know at all. And even in the silence, there may be some people that you're attracted to and some that you can't stand. And yet, in spite of all of that, in spite of all the differences that, that you represent in this room, all the life experiences, you all have a reason for being here. This beautiful intention, and I use that word beautiful, not aesthetically, it is the intention for freedom. And so it's not often said in this room, but the collective practice is already beginning in this room. This is not just about your personal retreat. It is, but it is not just about your personal retreat. There is an underlying vision that connects all of our experience. And that is what makes relationships so worthy. Because relationship itself is a very powerful form of transformation. Without this aspect of feeling and living the teachings of interconnection, the work in the world is so much more difficult when we are separate, when you are other. Relationship is not a special condition that we've saved for our partners or our children or our family. It's like metta. It's intended to be extended to the best that we can in widening circles in all directions. <clears throat> this is the forgiveness practice also that Donald spoke to about being in relationship even with the difficult beings in our life. Because we have this peculiar way of thinking that we can do this alone. You know, and if we don't do this alone, something's wrong with us or something's wrong with the practice or... But actually, we're not supposed to do it alone. And not only are we not supposed to do it alone, we can't do it alone. And this is why the, the Buddha, even in you know, those early years, 2,600 years ago, when he formed spiritual community, the four pillars of the community, the um, monastic women, the monastic men, the lay women, the lay men, there is a programmed um, practice of interdependence. So, for example, all the monastics walk for their food every day. 
So when I was a monastic, I would take my bowl out at dawn, take your um, shoes off because the touching the earth that supports you represents the support that you're going to receive for your daily food. Because the monastics are not allowed to cook for themselves, they're not allowed to buy food, they're not allowed to store food overnight. They are dependent on this particular guideline in the, in, the, in the Vinaya, which is the code for monastic behavior, to get their food from the community every day. That's how dependent. So that the community is dependent on the spiritual teachings of freedom. And the repository of the teachings is dependent on the teachings them, on the community themselves. That flow of, of generosity and kindness and energy. Another poem from Naomi Shiabnai. I know that Donald um, read her poem on kindness. This is wandering around an Albuquerque airport terminal, which this 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 poem um, has 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 cycles of 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 being spread out on the web. So you may have heard it, but it's so relevant to this particular topic. After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement, if anybody is in the vicinity of gate 4A and understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. 4A was my own gate, so I went there, and an older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled on the floor, wailing loudly. The flight service person said, help, talk to her. What is her problem? We told her her flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some medical treatment the following day. And I said, no, no, we're fine. You'll get there. Just late. Who's picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. So we called her son and I spoke to him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother until we got on the plane and would ride next to her. She talked to him and then we called one of her other sons just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad, and he spoke, and she spoke for a while in Arabic, and found out, of course, they shared ten friends. (laughs) Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her, and this took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, answering questions, and she had a sack of homemade mamul cookies, the little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag, and she was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. No better cookies. And then the airline broke out free beverages with, from huge coolers. Two little girls from our flight 
ran to serve us all apple juice and lemonade and they were covered with the same powdered sugar. I noticed my new best friend now and by now we were holding friends, holding hands and had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal something with green furry leaves. Always carry a plant to stay rooted to somewhere. I looked around the gate at the of the late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in this gate seemed apprehensive about another person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those women. And this can happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. And sometimes it's also not as easy as that. So um, Ajahn Tong, who was the abbot of my monastery, um, I knew that there was, um, you know, strife in the organization, even while I was there for only six months. And I could see, even even monasteries, there are politics. I mean, that's the human experience, right? So I asked him about it at one point in time. And he said, Building community is like putting volcanic rocks into a millstone. The rocks grind against each other until they're individually shaped, smooth, and beautiful. And this is what we do when we collectively gather in spiritual practice. Not only do we come with those beautiful noble intentions, but we come with the sorrows of our imperfections as well. We often come into spiritual practice looking for respite from a world that is so crazy and busy, and we look for peace, sometimes even looking for the the peace from the harm or the trauma or the abuse that the world is so good at. And we look for these places of safety, which, as you know, is a primary intention of the metta practice, creating safety. And creating safety is not just an individual matter. It is individually felt, but it is not just an individual um, creation. So for example, at the East Bay Meditation Center, we create culturally specific groups to create that safety of, of practice. You know, we have the open group that anybody can join, but not everybody feels safe enough to join that particular group. So we've extended the programming to create people of color, sitting groups, an alphabet sitting group, which means the LGBTIQ, SGL <laughs> communities, the trans, the um, lesbian, gay, bisexual communities. We have a group for people with differing physical and mental abilities, which we call every body, every mind. Collective organizational support for safety for as many 
communities as possible. And we also realize that safety is a complex issue. There is no space that's 100% safe in this world. We know that. So how do we create a space that's safe enough for each of us? This cannot be done individually or personally. We all have felt unsafe at times. Therefore, we can use that experience to create a, a collective sense of safety. What works for me? And would it work for someone else? We found that the, the issues of people living with different physical uh, abilities or experiences is not just about accommodating those particular experiences because likely all of us will be there at some day. It's an issue for all of us to, to look at and, and resolve. You know, in terms of the abuse in our larger culture, sexism and the violence towards women are not just women's issues. Homophobia does not just involve the LGBT community. Racism and multicultural work does not just involve communities of color. All of this work, the creating of safety, requires all of our attention. This is the shift in consciousness that Dr. King is inviting us into. Because we actually want more than safety. We want to be seen. We want to be validated. We want to be cared for. We want all of those Brahma-Faharas to be present for all of who we are, meaning all of our communities, to feel connected to. And this sense of safety and connection is a lived experience. It's not something that we can, you know, we can understand it, but it is more than understanding it. In 1995, conservationists were about to close on a 10,000-acre ranch in eastern Oregon to convey it to the Bureau of Land Management. Just six weeks before the closing, project manager Bowen Blair for the National Trust of Public Land got a call from Jamie Pinkham, a member of the Nez Perce Nation. Jamie relates that this property contained the cave in which their ancestral leader, Chief Joseph, was born. At the end of the last great war between the U.S. Cavalry and the Indian nation, Chief Joseph had made his famous statement, Hear me, my chiefs, I am tired. My heart is sick and sad, and from where the sun now stands, I will fight no more. The Nez Perce had very little money, but a whole lot of history and connection to that landscape, and the conversation changed both men. However, that personal transformation was insufficient to heal what occurred between an Indian nation over generations of oppression. So they started two years of complex negotiations which triggered impacts across many communities in the area. One can imagine the value of this effort 
to the Nez Perce people, but what did it ask of the white ranchers who had come to dominate this land before the time of the Indian Wars? For a people who were forcibly removed from their land five generations ago, becoming a good neighbor required incredible acts of forgiveness and compassion. And the return of the Nez Perce to their lands proved transformational to others. From that forgiveness, the largely white community of Enterprise, Oregon, felt the same lessons and started and act started thinking and acting differently. The community became deeply divided over the appropriateness of the high school mascot called the Savages. Armed guards were required at the Board of Education meetings. In the end, it was the vote of the students which who prevailed, and the community began to sandblast the Indian symbol off the school walls. In June of 1997, the Trust for Public Land was able to convey to the Nez Perce Nation some 10,300 acres. It was 120 years after Chief Joseph and his people were driven from their lands. Three years later, the Nez Perce entered into a remarkable partnership with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and Cattlemen's Association to reintroduce the wolf. And three years after that came the most amazing change at all of all, their ability to deal morally and practically with one of the most difficult issues of the American West, the control of water. The Nez Perce joined the white ranchers and the irrigators to voluntarily reduce the amount of water flowing to ranches so that salmon could be restored to local rivers an initiative that shares control of the river and makes partners with the salmon. The ability for communities to be aware of each other, to be compassionate and kind to each other, to be in relationship and stay in relationship regardless of the difficulties and the traumas, all for the desire to be whole again, whole in the largest sense of the word, as in a whole community, this, this feeling of universal family which includes the wolf and the salmon. This is the beautiful community that's possible. Jung talked Carl Jung talked about the collective unconscious, which means the good news is, is, is that he, if he talked about the collective unconscious, there is a collective consciousness that can be raised. This is the invitation of Sangha, of the refuge of community. And the outcome of this practice is very profound. It's the very evolution of who we are into this, into the lived experience, not just the 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 the, the wishes, the well wishes of everything is one, but the lived experience of the universal family and the capacity to civilize ourselves over 
and over again, to cause non-harm in greater and greater ways. And in, in our interconnection, we are also so unique and individual, which, which really presents the complexity of the fabric of our communities. So I'll give you another example from East Bay Meditation Center. We're very um, skilled at attracting people, diverse communities into our doors. And yet, more than just attraction, we have to be able to also give people the skills to live together once they're in that room. It is an ongoing process. And so, you know, as an example, our founding board, of which Kanda and I were on, um, Compose was composed of a white heterosexual man, an African-American lesbian, a straight Asian woman, a white gender-neutral queer-identified person, a gay Asian man, that's me, an African-American heterosexual woman, a white Jewish lesbian, two people with multiple chemical sensitivities, one person with different, who identified with different uh, physical abilities. There was a wide diversity in age, education, and class. And it was not easy being on that board. <laughs> we had a lot of differences. And we didn't agree with each other Right, Conda? <laughs> Although Conda and I always agreed. <laughs> and really, we didn't lo- necessarily like each other. Although Conda and I always liked each other. <laughs> and we even had different expressions of ethical behavior. That is deep. And we held these differences together because there was something so much larger than any of our particular opinions. This is holding the tension that kindness invites us to. The possibility that the whole is so much greater than the sum of the parts. So, you know, in that in that complexity of community which shows up all the time in everybody's life the unconscious conditioning of the larger culture is when differences come into the room we fragment we go into that those places of of familiarity of 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 comfort and we break apart what would it be like to break together what would it be like, regardless of the differences in the room, to remember the inclination of the heart and even in the break, be together? 
Jean Vanier, who is a French both philosopher and community builder, he created a community for um, developmentally disabled uh, people and their families, talks about community being a constant act of forgiveness, a constant act of the heart, which means that community is a constant act of love. Holding the tensions of differences is not necessarily resolving the tensions or fixing the problems or making them go away or making one right or one wrong. It is always complex. And what allows us to walk through that complexity is both mindfulness and kindness. It happens through effort and patience, recognizing that there are shared joys amid whatever pain is arising, and that vibration between the joys and the sorrows create that balance of equanimity. This is what we're cultivating right now. It is a really advanced practice, this cultivating the beautiful and beloved community. Sometimes the um, reconditioning, the, the elevation of our cultural consciousness, our, of our um, collective consciousness, is sometimes has been referred to in the Dharma as creating these habits of the heart that draw on the Brahma-viharas. But what's interesting to me is that the term habits of the heart is not just a personal practice and it's not just a Dharma practice. That term was first coined in the 1830s by a young Frenchman called Alexis de Tocqueville in his classic Democracy in America. And he posited that the future of democracy would be determined by the collective habits of the heart developed and by the integrity or the lack of integrity of the sources of spiritual health, including our families, our neighborhoods, our classrooms, our congregations, our workplaces, and our places of public cultural life. He is pointing to the future of democracy depending upon our spiritual health. These habits of the heart, it inspires me to think that they are embedded even in our culture, our country's norms and values that sometimes can feel so broken or so um, disturbed in the current uh, politics. So these are words from Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address. And it was before the first shots of the Civil War were fired on Fort Sumter, 
We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained it, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of our union when again touched, as they surely well be, by the better angels of our nature. There were 600, over 600,000 casualties in that war. And in the middle of that war, his second inaugural address, he writes, in the middle of that conflagration, with malice towards none and charity for all, with a firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up our nation's wounds, to care for him who have who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. And a month later, in his last public address, it was two days later, two days after the surrender of um, the Confederate army, and this jubilant crowd gathered in front of the White House calling for a message from President Lincoln. And um, there was a reporter, Noah Brooks, from the local Washington newspaper, and he wrote about the words that Lincoln shared. Outside was this vast sea of spaces illuminated by lights that burned in the festal array of the White House, stretching far out into the misty darkness. Within stood the tall, gaunt figure of the president, deeply thoughtful, intent upon elucidating the policy which should be pursued towards the South. That this was not the sort of speech which the multitude had expected is tolerably certain, because he writes, the sole object of the government civil and military in regard to those states is to again get them into proper practical relationship. I believe it is only possible, but in fact easier to do this without deciding or even considering whether these states have ever been out of the Union than with it. Finding themselves safely at home, it would be utterly immaterial whether they had ever been abroad. Let us all join in doing these acts necessary to restore the proper practical relationship between these states and the Union. Holding the tension with kindness and compassion in the face of of unthinkable odds. And he lost his life three days afterwards. He spoke these words with his life because so many lives depended on it. These habits of the heart are ingrained in our human experience. 130 years later, I think I shared this story last year, but it feels relevant that in February 11th, 1990, 
Nelson Mandela was released from prison. And after that, there were four years of negotiation leading to the democracy that emerged, but it almost didn't happen. So Mandela was not the only political leader at the time that was negotiating with the, the apartheid government. Chris Hani was, was um, almost his second in command. He was the leader of the, the youth brigade. And it was Chris Hani that was assassinated on April 10th in 1993, three years into the negotiations. And it almost derailed everything. Because what happened was a polarization and, and the real possibility of a civil war that could have affected not just the continent, but the world. And in that tension, and that is an understatement, it was not de Klerk that stood up to speak. It was Mandela. And so Mandela said these words, even though he was not yet president. Tonight I am reaching out to every single South African, black and white, from the very depths of my being. A white man full of prejudice and hate came to our country and committed a deed so foul that our whole nation now teeters on the brink of disaster. A white woman of Afrikaner origin risked her life so that we may know and bring to justice this assassin. The cold-blooded murder of Chris Hani has sent shockwaves throughout this country and the world. Our grief and anger are tearing us apart. Now is the time for all South Africans to stand together against those from any quarter who wish to destroy that which Chris Hani gave his life for, the freedom of us all. This is a watershed moment for all of us. Our decisions and actions will determine whether we use our pain, our grief, our outrage to move forward to what is the only lasting solution of this country, an elected government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Holding the tension with non-harm, noticing the impulse for violence, for reactivity and not needing to act on it, not just on a personal level, but actually something that that held it for the world. Dr. King writes, we will stand up before our most violent opponent and say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. And our victory will be a double victory. but I want to invite you to remember, we don't have to be Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. We don't have to be Aung San Suu Kyi. We don't have to even be the Buddha. All we have to remember is that 13-year-old boy, Devante, 
who was trying to express love in the midst of his pain. That's all we have to remember. Because that is what will bridge the tension. That is what will hold our sorrows and joys together. That is what, that is what will allow us to continue what we are already doing, and that is to evolve as a human species. This is the comprehensive practice that we're deeply involved. Internal to external, individual to collective. It's the connection to the whole. And and just as we are so much more than who we think we are individually. We are so much more than what this cognitive organ tells us who we are. We are also so much more as communities than we think we are. So, you know, some of the, the Eastern religions are characterized by the profound question of who am I? the repeating question, who am I? Who am I really? And that really is the invitation into who are we? Who are we really? And we explore that over and over again until the labels don't necessarily have any meaning. It's the lived experience of what it means to be human in this life. What kind of, what kind of liberation, what would liberation look like if it was collective? From Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddha, our teacher, predicted that the next Buddha would be the Maitreya, Buddha of love. It is possible that the next Buddha will not take the form of an individual the next Buddha may take the form of a community, a community practicing, understanding, and loving kindness, a community practicing mindful living. And the practice can be carried out as a group, as a city, as a nation. May we live into that invitation deeply and awaken together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.